Well, let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5, and you will see from the title that we need to spend some time here, the meaning and the extent of a wife's submission. Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just read the paragraph that we'll be studying over the next few weeks and put it in our kind of our RAM so that we can remember what Paul is saying. Ephesians 5, 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members, parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but... I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking into the subject of marriage, being a godly husband, being a godly wife. And as I said last week, I want to reiterate again today Beginning this paragraph makes me want to tell you, some of you, how aware we are of, of how this could possibly be a painful journey. And what I mean by that is studying this passage could raise in the hearts of those who have yet to be married and want to be married a longing and, and, and a, a disappointment that you're not able to apply these things. I, I understand, we understand. Let's all be patient with those who are hearing this from that perspective and love each other on that. I'm also aware that there are those who have been divorced or who have been widowed who long to be able to go back, but you can't. We're aware that you're here as well, but we also want to make sure that you're aware of those of us who are married who need this paragraph and what's sweet about this paragraph is that it, it's not just about marriage, but he actually uses marriage to illustrate what we need to understand about the gospel while at the same time using the gospel to illustrate how we must understand marriage. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage. We read about lots of marital relationships in the Word of God. Lots of husbands, lots of wives, lots of faithfulness, and even some examples of unfaithfulness. But one of the most interesting observations any Bible reader can make is 
is the variety of ways that people get together as husband and wife in the Bible. I'm amazed by this, and we could go on all day, but let me just give you a few of the ways that men and women acquired spouses in your Bible. You could find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes, then she is yours. That's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 11 to 13. You could, men, find a prostitute and marry her. That's Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. How about this? Find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. That's what Moses did in Exodus 2. If you're a girl, you're not to be left out. There's an angle you can take as well. Here's what you do. You find this guy that you want to marry. You wait until a night when it's going to be cold. You go where he's sleeping. You uncover his feet so his feet get cold. He wakes up, bends down to cover your feet, and you just happen to be at his feet. He looks up and sees you, and then you ask him to marry you. That's what Ruth did. How about this? Go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. That's what the Benjamites, Benjaminites did in Judges 21. This may be the easiest way. Guys, take a nap, a long one, and when you wake up, God may have created you a wife. Now, it's going to cost you a rib, but... Genesis chapter 2. You know this one. Agree to work for seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage that you love, only to be tricked into marrying the wrong woman, then work another seven years for the woman you really wanted to marry in the first place. That's right, 14 years of toil for a woman. That was who? Jacob in Genesis 29. Cut off 200 foreskins of your future father-in-law's enemies and then you'll get his daughter for a wife. That's what David did in 1 Samuel 18. I like this. If you can't find anyone, just kind of wander around a bit and you'll eventually find a, a spouse. That's what Cain did in Genesis 4, 16 and 17. Of course, it's all relative First hour didn't get that, so I'm, I appreciate that. <laughs> Become an emperor of a huge nation, hold a beauty contest. That's what Ahasuerus did. Esther 2. I like this. I'm going to quote the scripture exactly here. When you see someone you like, men, go home and tell your parents, I have seen a woman. Now, get her for me. If your parents question the decision, you can simply say in response, Get her for me. She's the one for me. That's Samson in Judges 14. Maybe you want to memorize that, guys. You can find a woman that you think is desirable. And if she's married, you could kill her husband and take her. That was David, 2 Samuel 11. 
you can wait for your brother to die, then take his widow, that's Onan and Boaz and Ruth. Or maybe don't be so picky, just make up for quality with quantity and have a thousand women in your life. That's what Solomon did in 1 Kings 11. The point I'm making is be careful using the Bible when it comes to finding a spouse. I remember as a college pastor being involved in this massive debate between courtship and dating and this is that and this is biblical. Do you really want to use the Bible as an example as how you get married? The Bible doesn't give us any instruction on how to find a spouse. But it does give us incredibly detailed discussion on how to be the right kind of spouse. And that's the paragraph we're looking at here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul begins here, his paragraph on marriage, by addressing wives. And this is what he says, verse 22. Wives, submit yourself to or be subject to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the body, head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Wow. Very few verses in the Bible you are holding there on your lap go against the mindset and worldview of our culture more than these three. Very few. So let me begin with a few words of introduction. We're going to be spending significant time over the next few weeks in this passage. As I said last week, that's because marriage illustrates the gospel. The gospel illustrates marriage. Therefore, Satan is after marriage. He wants to destroy it. He wants to undermine it. This passage... And the words we just read draw lightning strikes of strong reaction from a world infected with a feministic, compromising worldview. There are three concepts, three words that stand out and flash, almost like a kick-me sign you would put on the back of your shoulders. Authority, submission, and headship. These are not the cantankerous rants of Paul's toxic masculinity. These are God's ideas. They came from him. God designed men and women. God designed male and female. God designed marriage. God designed headship and subordination in the marriage relationship. This is God's idea. This is God's word. I didn't write this. Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there's a serious and a significant problem to which we must admit. God's beautiful, God's glorious, God's good design of headship and submission in marriage have been so poorly taught, so poorly represented, so poorly lived out that the distortion of these concepts has become what people critique, and rightly so. Look down for a minute down the page at verse 32. 
Paul, after verse 31, citing Genesis and God making two, uh, one out of two after he made two out of one, two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is great. We're mystery we've met before, mysterion. Mystery is important as we go through this paragraph. It's something that was hidden in God and by God, which humans could have never unraveled by their own ingenuity or study, but it's revealed by God for all believers to understand. It's something that was previously unknown, but now is known. What was previously unknown, but now is known? Previously, there was male and female, man and woman, marriage with someone for life. The mystery is that the marriage relationship can be best understood by understanding the relationship Christ has with the church. And oddly enough, understanding Christ and his relationship with the church is best understood by understanding the intimacy and the oneness of marriage. That's the mystery. So because it's a mystery, we should expect to hear as we go through this, this paragraph, newer things, things against the culture. We need, we need this paragraph so badly. I was going over notes yesterday and I wrote that sentence right here. We need this paragraph of scripture desperately. And I began to think of the wisdom of God who has decided that we at Mission Road Bible Church would be in this paragraph at this point in our church's life in this month of the year with the people who are at our church right now and it just gave me chills. God brought us to this precipice to see the view that he's created for us. So let's unpack it together. We have... Three questions for clarifying confusion about submission in marriage. Three questions for clarifying confusion that exists about submission in marriage. We are only going to get through the first question today, which is only one verse, but I think you'll understand why when we start looking into it. This is so misunderstood, we have to slow down and say, what does it say? And also affirm what it doesn't say. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, so far, Paul has been addressing the church at large in the book of Ephesians, but beginning in verse 22, he starts this rapid fire staccato application of what it means to walk under control of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit to specific groups in the church. First, he addresses wives, then he addresses husbands, then he comes back to wives, then he goes to children, then he goes to parents or fathers, then he goes to slaves, which is employees, then he goes to employers, which are masters. It's interesting that when he says, here's how to live out life under control of the Spirit of God, he looks at two spheres, home and work. There aren't a lot of other spheres You can say school, but I would put that in the category of work, and I'm sure you would too if you had to. So in the section of verses 22 to 33, Paul says, wives, I need to talk to you. And then he speaks to the husbands. 
Then as I said, he'll circle back at the very end of verse 33 with one word again to the wives and interwoven throughout this entire paragraph, stitched together the connective tissue that makes us understand what Paul is saying is the gospel. Now the passage before us has been a friction point in our generation like few others, especially in recent decades with what's been known as evangelical feminism. I have more to say about that in coming weeks. But the marriages that I've encountered are swimming against a riptide of cultural strain and confusion about marriage. And in evangelical circles, there's been much discussion and debate about the roles of men and women in marriage and even in the church. As we'll see next week, this boils down to being a complementarian or an egalitarian. Just hold those words in your mind and we'll come back and define them more intimately and in detailed fashion next week. Egalitarian means that there's really no structure of headship and submission. Complementarian says there is headship and submission and structure and order in marriage and, and in the church. Paul's going to be strategic later in this paragraph in verse 31. He will take his understanding of marriage and tell us explicitly by quoting, he's basing what he's teaching on the book of Genesis. Unless you think, oh, this is just cultural. I mean, that was, we're listening to Paul 2,000 years ago. There's more distance between Paul and creation that he's quoting than Paul and us. He appeals to God's creative order, not culture. Now, we have to start first by noticing something that you will notice right away if you have a New American Standard Bible and that there are some words in italics there, right? See that? That means that those are not in the original. Spoiler alert, drum roll, there is no verb in verse 22. No verb at all. The translators supplied it there with those italics words. They write, they translate, wives be subject to or submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. Literally, it's wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. You say, what to your own husbands and the Lord? It borrows the verb from the previous verse. Listen to it in context. Be subject to or literally submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands. Hear it? As to the Lord. Hupatasso. To be submissive to. It's an important, powerful word, powerful verb. It means, listen, to submit yourself in, to something or someone in recognition of an ordered structure. Footnote. I want to say this as clear as I can before we get into the nuances. Ready? This does not teach that women have a submissive role simply because of their sex. There's dignity as the image bearer of God that what a woman bears, and we studied that last time. This does not teach also that there's a kind of submission that implies that women are inferior to men. They're not. And it does not teach that the husband, as head of the wife, has unquestioned and unchallenged authority over his wife. Oh, it can be questioned and it can be challenged if it's ungodly. And we'll look at that when we get to the men. 
So what does Paul mean by telling the wives to submit to, to place themselves in an ordered structure underneath their husband, to follow their husband? Well, he gives us an important clue in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to this. Wives, he uses the verb here, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting or appropriate in the Lord. We'll be looking way deeper into that parallel passage in the next few verses. First thing we must settle, though, is a serious interpretive issue. You may have heard this before. Hopefully you have not been wooed by it before, but it is out there everywhere. You cannot read any commentary or any subject, any uh, uh, article on this passage without running into this alternate kind of interpretation. What's the alternate? Well, there's an alternate interpretation that believes that since in verse 21, there's mutual submission, submit yourself to one another in the fear of Christ. See one another as an authority figure to speak into your life. Because it says that, it nullifies and flattens a wife's submission to her husband. That it's unnecessary because we just submit to each other. The question I have is, then why does it say it? Couldn't he just stop at 21? No. In fact, the lack of verb even underscores his emphasis even more. Be submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. Generally, specifically, wives, what does that look like for you? Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. See what he's doing there? It doesn't nullify, it intensifies. Egalitarianism in reference to marriage means that the leadership and headship of a man between himself and his wife are not determined by God's word, which teaches that men are to lead and be the head of their household, but rather that leadership is equal and shared between the husband and wife. Now, we will talk in some detail about what this means and what it doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that a wife never gives leadership or the husband never submits to his wife. Trust me, come to my house and you'll see how that works. It means that there's an ordered structure of who's the final head in the home. Some point out that there are three examples that are indicated in this, or undermined by this mutual submission, and this is what it get, where it gets a little crazy. Wives submit to husbands. They say, well, this mutual submission flattens that out, out. It's not true. How about this? Children and parents... Because we'll find out in the next passage that children are submit to their parents. We're slaves and masters, employees and employers. So, I mean, in a limited sense of applying verse 21, we submit to one another. I submit to my kids. I submit to, to my wife in terms of submitting to what's right that they can hold me accountable to. But in terms of leadership and headship, this is next week, there's a clear hierarchy described. Paul's speaking of something different. Listen, in Paul's day, no one would question the pattern of a wife submitting to her husband or a child submitting to his parent or a slave submitting to his master. That was a very male-dominated culture and no one questioned that. That was no mystery. The mystery was that the one who is submitted to, the husband, loves, cares for, protects, provides for, 
his wife, and also his children. Mutual submission doesn't undermine the roles in marriage any more than it does with kids, children. This kind of submission that Paul is talking about should be to a self-sacrificing, loving husband. And when both husband and wife are fulfilling their God-given roles and his desires for them, it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But it's interesting that so much of our pushback against this passage is from uh, some who are from a feminist perspective saying, well, a woman should not have to submit to a man. Never say, well, a man should not have to love his wife. There's only one side of the equation that's, that's being attacked. We'll make note of this as we work through this passage. But nowhere does this passage say, Paul never says, a husband should rule over his wife or demand authority over her or from her. Instead, the instruction is clear and simple. He is to love, for, love her and care for her. Walter Layfield, super helpful here. Listen to what he says. Unfortunately, some Christian husbands have claimed authority even to the extreme of abuse in the name of headship. In fact, however, such abusive behavior tends toward pagan rather than Christian moral standards, end quote. He's right. This passage does not teach male superiority, meaning that wives submit to their husbands because they are women, And it's not just a cultural thing. You can't say that was then and this is now. Pagan thinking saturates the worldview that we are surrounded by. By the way, when Paul says the wife is to submit to her husband, this is interesting. As to the Lord, guys, don't get excited about that. It doesn't mean you come into your wife and say, hey, Jesus, me, kind of synonyms. So just when you submit to me, you're submitting to him. When you submit to him, you better submit to me. That has nothing to do with what he's saying. He's not saying that we're synonymous. It means submission is a way to honor the Lord. In the coming weeks, we're going to study this passage and the principles of headship and submission. And I know this leaves a lot of questions, but trust me, we will answer almost all of them as we work through each phrase of this so submit to your husband, be subject to your husband as to the Lord means as you submit to the Lord, part of that is submitting to your husband. Don't draw all your conclusions until we work through down to verse 33, okay? For now, remember that God has created a world in a way that functions with order and with hierarchy, in other words, there are spheres of authority that have been placed by God in every area of life that he expects us to follow underneath. Three main ones that we said earlier, the family, the church, the state. This is the family. These are the heart of God's provision and protection. He uses the protection of the state to serve the citizens. He uses the protection of elders and the church and church leaders to serve his church, and he uses the protection of a husband to serve his wife. 
I've done, I, I've stopped counting, I'm guessing 250 weddings. It's incredible to, to, to do a wedding. You have the best seat in the house, first of all, because you're about two feet from the couple. And I, I, I just did one a few weeks ago and standing right there and right here, two feet from me is the husband. And I say this in every ceremony. She is yours. She's given to you by God not to have, but she's given to you to serve. And it's true. Uniquely, this category of a wife submitting to her husband is based on Christ's relationship to his bride, the church, submitting to him. As we'll see, wives not only have the responsibility to submit to their, to their husbands and follow them, but men have a tremendous responsibility before the Lord to lead their wives and their families in such a way that it mimics Christ's leadership in the church. It doesn't mean that you never have counsel and input and following from your wives, men, any more than a husband never gets it from his, his kids. I remember as clear as a bell taking as probably a 10 or 11-year-old son of mine over to his friend's house, and I turned left. He said, Dad, I think you were supposed to turn right. I was sure we were supposed to turn left. So we're going, going, going. It's not very long. Men, have you ever had that, that moment where you, you make a wrong turn and then you realize it and you think, how can I cover this? How, I, I wanted to see this house. I wanted to check this mailbox. No. And so I stopped and pulled over. My precious son says, so you took the wrong turn, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So you're going to go the way that I said, aren't you? Yeah, that's submission but it didn't mean I abandoned my role as father. How about this? My sons were very small, smaller than that, I should say. Uh, when they would get in trouble, they would get the due penalty of their error and the rod of reproof. Never one time did I do something wrong, and I did a lot wrong. And then I looked up at Luke and said, I need the rod, son, don't I? Yes, Dad, bend over. No, that never happened. I'm sure he wanted it. <laughs> In other words, mutual submission never undermines hierarchy. And the submission of a wife to her husband is not based on her relationship with her husband or even his relationship with the Lord. It's based on her relationship and obedience to Christ because I know what you're thinking. Ladies, I hear it. Every woman has asked this, especially some who are in this situation. What if... It sounds great to submit to a husband who loves me, who protects me, who provides for me. That sounds great. But what if my husband is not a believer? What if my husband is ungodly? What do I do then? Peter knew you would ask that question, and this is what he said. 1 Peter 3, 1. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word or the gospel, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Then he goes on to talk about developing a beautiful and a quiet spirit, not to adorn yourself externally only, but 
in your heart, to be attractive in your heart. Much, much more to drill into that in the coming weeks. In fact, we'll be back on that next week. I'm trying very hard not to turn this whole series into a dating series, which is a temptation, but can I just speak to you single women who have never been married or who are still seeking to be married? Can I just beg you to listen with attentive ears for a moment? Knowing that God will call you to submit to your husband should make you incredibly picky about the man you choose. My mom used to say, Ricky, every date is a potential mate in a southern accent. She's right. The greatest gift, girls, the greatest gift you will ever give a man is your submission. So choose carefully. Begin asking early in the dating process in your heart, is this a man who I can follow? Is this a man who understands God and I want to understand God like he does? Is this a man who loves the word of God and I want to love it like he does and follow his example? Is this a man who leads me into a greater love for Christ, bride, the church, and I love his love for the church? (laughs) You have a choice at who you're going to give your submission to, gals. Make that choice wisely. As we're going to see over and over, all of us, though, wives included, have to learn in our submission, you're going, unless it's the Lord, you're going to have to learn how to submit to authority that fails. Every authority you ever submit to will fail. I'm the head of that list as a pastor, as a church leader as as a husband. You're going to fail. So there needs to be grace applied and grace understood. But you believe this and you're going to be going against the stream of everything. Listen to what Andreas and Marnie Kostenberger write. It's a paragraph. I think it's worth reading. The biblical message of submission is deeply countercultural and incompatible with the deep-seated egalitarianism with this individual wisdom and emphasis on personal freedom and inalienable personal rights pervading our culture. Counter-cultural positions call for courage. Submission is generally stereotyped and caricatured in our culture and given a very negative connotation. This is the case even though submission is found everywhere in our culture. Our lives are full of instances in which we are called to practice submission. Our employers, the Internal Revenue Service, police, and other local and federal authorities. Unfortunately, there's also a pervasive and negative attitude toward those, towards these institutions in part. This is related to the abuse of authority. In other cases, it's a function of our human sinfulness and reluctance to submit to anyone. At best, cultural dispositions toward authority tend toward ambivalence. People are resigned to the fact that you can't live with authority very well, but you can't live very well without it. To adapt Winston Churchill's adage concerning democracy, authority may be the worst part of human relationships except 
all other forms of relating that have been tried. Then they say this. Nevertheless, it is important to understand that opposition to wives' submission to marriage, while at times exegetically grounded, often stems not from a biblical lack of clarity, but from powerful cultural forces, end quote. It's interesting that there's a parallel with the doctrine of predestination and election. Most people that I've had discussions with about this, about this will confess, it's not that you don't understand it, it's that you don't like it. As I said earlier, part of the problem with accepting and applying the principles here in Ephesians 5 is related to how they have been taught and in some instances, how authority and submission have been abused. What about an abusive man? God doesn't call you to submit to sin. What about an ungodly husband? God calls the church to deal with an ungodly husband if he'll listen. You can also say, what does a man do with a wife who just will not submit? That's why we have the church. Hang on to those questions. Answers are coming. So back to our outline question. How should submission work in marriage? Let me make it really simple. A Christian wife ought to follow the leadership of her husband as a way to honor her Lord. This never means that she follows him in a way that makes her sin. And if his leadership is sinful, the church is to come alongside and help the couple. Let me do something a little different. I typically don't do this at the end of most sermons, but I want to add a few personal comments. You get 45 or 50 minutes of this on Sunday. I live under the pressure of these verses weeks and weeks ahead of time, which is wonderful, but sometimes a burden because it has a lot of time to press into my own heart. As a husband, I want to tell you that the greatest burden in the passage before us is not the submission of wife, but how I can love mine, protect mine, provide for my wife, foster a relationship in which her submission is a blessing to her and not a burden. been married coming up on 29 years in just a few months. In 29 years, I have never had to ask my wife, nor have I had to tell my wife one time to submit. Never once. And trust me when I say that's because of her godliness, not my leadership. Now, full disclosure, there have been times when we've had a decision to make. And in the end, I just said, honey, I think we need to go with this. And she says, well, tell you what, 
The Lord has called you to submit to him, and he calls me to submit to you. So this is between you and the Lord. I'll follow what you say. When you can't just turn me over to God. (laughs) Something else. Our church will never support abusive, ungodly, and selfish leadership of any husband over his wife, ever. And we'll say much more about that in the coming weeks. I need to know this. Our church leaders have talked about this things, these things many times. Your elders, your deacons, your care group leaders are willing to submit our beliefs about marriage, about headship, about submission to God and his word. Should we receive pushback of these things? And I expect the emails to come, typically not from our church, but the people who listen from outside. We desire to be counted faithful to believe and apply what Paul says under the inspiration of God's spirit and let the argument be with him and with God and not with us. Just so you know that there's some logic to this, the next verse asks the question, why should a wife submit to us? Why? There's a reason that this is the case. And it goes back to that hierarchy order of headship that we'll study, study. And then thirdly, and I don't know how far we'll get next week. Don't judge me. When should a wife submit to her husband? When? What's the context? What does it mean when it says she should submit to him in everything? Well, come back and we'll... We'll talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean because there are limits to that meaning. Christians must conclude that God invented marriage. God designed marriage. Thus, he knows how it works best. He knows how to glorify himself. He knows to bring us joy and pleasure and fulfillment in the marriage relationship. And it's by doing what he said. Let me give you a parallel illustration that all of you understand. Um, listen, there are, my, my dad was a, was a cop. He was a, a, a beat officer, and then he was a detective the last few decades of my life, of his life, rather. And uh, I know inside and out the life of police officer in that world. There are bad policemen. There's some bad actors. There's some bad dudes who ought not be doing that. They ought to have their badge ripped off of their chest and some go to prison. But just because there's bad actors doesn't mean we should defund the whole police force and have no police, does it? So the idea of this defund the police movement, which almost no one believes, is as ridiculous as saying, well, there shouldn't be authority and submission and headship and submission in marriage because there's a few bad actors. There's some bad husbands. Yes, there are some people who have abused this, just as there are wives who have refused to submit. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply, and that doesn't mean that this is not real, and this doesn't bring grace. So I don't want to say it mean or rudely, but we believe that this is the best way for marriage to work. And you say, that sounds crazy for a wife to submit. No more crazy than for a husband to act like Jesus in his leadership. 
You say, that's almost impossible for a wife to do. No more impossible than it is for a husband to be Christ-like in his headship. And here's what's sweet. If a Christian husband and a Christian wife lean hard into their responsibilities and their roles together, you see the gospel on full display. It might be that as you hear these words in this passage that you think, Christ loved his bride, the church. I don't know that he loves me that way and I'm certainly not submitting to him. And you'll hear the life-changing good news that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ, accept and receive his forgiveness for your sins, submit to him and follow him as your Lord and Savior. And your life will be not only radically changed, but inestimably improved and fulfilled. If you'd like to talk about that, we'd love to chat with you in our prayer room. Let me pray. Oh, Father, there's so many things in this text that make us ask some questions, but also things that are just great against our dispositions. Align our desires with your will. As a result of the study of this passage, convict the wives in our church to be better at following the headship of their husbands. Convict the husbands in our church to be those who are wonderful to follow because they're leading toward you, in you, and because of you. And when the barbs from critics come, give us courage to stand firm on what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.